All right. Well, good morning uh, from me. My name's Ben. I have the, the great privilege of being uh, the senior pastor here at Vintage. And um, we've been looking this uh, last weeks through the book of Ephesians at the shape of God's kingdom community. We've been talking about what it means to be God's people here on earth in what sometimes feels like a complicated moment of history, sometimes feels like a tough moment of history. But how do we be God's best? How do we be a church that displays his glory? Like, what is it supposed to look like? What is it supposed to feel like? even as the church lives in a contested space. And uh, we've been talking about the church as the family of God, like his kingdom community. And particularly these last few weeks, we've been talking about how in light of everything that God has done for us, we are called to live. And I think maybe one of the best summary verse that we see in the book of Ephesians is this in Ephesians 5, 8 to 10, when it says this of us. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. What a challenge, right? Those last little words. Find out what pleases the Lord. Um, And we've seen over this series how often the church is referred to as a family. And today we're picking up a particular part of that by looking at families. Particularly, we're going to talk a bit about uh, dating, marriage, and we're going to talk about uh, parenting. Now, I am excited, but I'll also let you into a secret to tell you this has probably been the hardest bit of sermon prep I have done since I've been at Vintage. Um, And it's not because I'm going on vacation this week. Um, It is because... Although the Bible is so clear about this, it is so beautiful, it's so exciting, actually we live in in a moment in history which is so difficult to talk about any of these topics. And I know that even as I bring some things this morning, there will be those of us in this room who are going to have this moment where we're just going to feel like, yeah, this is a hard topic for me. This is hard because maybe the things that I'm going to describe to you are not things that you've experienced as you grow up. It might be, but even now, as you have moved into adult life, that the things that I'm going to describe to you are honestly not how your life has panned out. And I want to tell you desperately, deeply, as your pastor, that we love you, that you are deeply loved. Whoever you are, whatever your story is, I am always comforted by these two interactions that Jesus had in the New Testament, where he met people who had particularly messy family lives. Um, The first one is he he met this uh, person who was caught in serial adultery, and they were about to be stoned to death. I'm not allowed to say stoned, but stoned to death. Um, And uh, the second one is where Jesus met somebody who had married five different people, got divorced, and was now living with another person. And in both instances, they were people who were cast out of their communities, they were judged, they were condemned, they were seen as lesser, and yet in both instances, Jesus went to them directly. He met them where they were at, he offered them love, he offered them kindness, he offered them grace, he offered them redemption and new beginnings. And, and so I just want to say this morning that if you, have got, if you are sitting there in any moment across this morning where you feel like, man, I just feel a little, bit, a little bit triggered now, I feel a little bit vulnerable, I just want you to know that you are loved, that you are safe, that we love you. And actually more than that, we want to walk with you in these complicated stories. And so if after this morning you feel like, I just would love to talk to somebody more deeply about some of these issues, Laura, myself, we'll be here after the service, but we'll also love to meet up with you for coffee if you want to talk and pray more. 
But this is a big moment in history to talk about families. Here in the US, we have more of a mixed, complicated picture of family life than ever before. Uh, here in, we have, uh, in the US, the third highest divorce rate in the world. About 40 to 50% of marriages will end in divorce. Uh, four out of 10 children are born outside of a stable marriage now. And about 38% of kids grow up not living with both their biological parents. What is God's kingdom response? What is maybe a better story to that? And so uh, let's look together. If you've got your Bibles, always super helpful. We are going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 25 to 6-4. Ephesians 5, 25 to 6-4. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body. But he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, and with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. I think we should pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, life. Thank you for leading us through this book and for this next bit that is right there in front of us for us to contend with. And uh, this morning, um, whatever our family situation, whatever our relationships have been like and are like today, we pray that you would, we would hear your heart. We would hear your love. We'd hear your instruction and your truth about life and life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Now, uh, clearly, uh, what we just read this morning is a picture of marriage, it's a picture of parenting, but it's also a picture of the church as a whole. Um, it is a picture of the recreated blueprint for what life is supposed to look and feel like. Um, but before we get too far into it, I want to just say one more thing by way of introduction, which is super important, which, which is this. If you read the Apostle Paul, particularly if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you will see that Paul thinks that there is at least one thing as important as marriage, as a state that you can be in, which may even be in his eyes better than being married. Now, you won't hear this in many churches, but it is basically this, singleness. Singleness. That in the Apostle Paul's mind, being a celibate single person is of at least as high a value as being a married person. And I say that because I think sometimes we come to churches and we're like, okay, those married people, they got it all together, right? They're the ones. Everybody else has kind of not quite got there yet. That is not a biblical worldview whatsoever. In fact, because Paul thought that Jesus was coming back soon, he thought the best thing you could possibly be was to be single because then you would be single-minded. You would be single-hearted towards God. 
that there is this intimacy, this ability to communicate and connect with God, which actually those of us who are not married or not in long-term relationships have because we have that ability and that, that time and that headspace and that emotional space. Um, and I think of my own life and I think of people who have poured so deeply into me and some of the most godly, most incredible leaders who have mentored and nurtured me have been people who have committed not even to a few years of singleness, but actually committed to a f- whole life of it. Um, and I say that because some of us this morning, when you're going to hear about marriage and you're going to go like, that's not me. Am I, am I some sort of like second class citizen? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Whether you're called to singleness for a period or whether, and some of us in this room will know this, this is actually the high calling we have for the rest of our earthly lives. Uh, you are so valuable. You are so equal to us. You are so loved here. But let's talk, let's talk uh, marriage. And as we do, if if this is not your situation, please would you just hear the heart behind what I'm going to say? Because I think pretty much everything we can say of marriage, we can also apply the principles to every other relationship we have with different people. So the story about marriage actually begins not with Paul, it actually begins in the Old Testament. If you open up at Genesis 2, you read these beautiful words, Genesis 2.18, which says, The Lord God said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And then in verse 24, these famous words, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve in the Bible give us the very first picture, the creation, if you remember, like chapter one, the very beginning, as it was originally designed to be, they give us this picture of marriage. Marriage, which is not like just an end in its own right. It's not just about the perfect marriage. It is actually with purpose. It is with the purpose of friendship, with companionship. If you remember what um, Jacob preached on a few weeks ago, and he gave us that Harvard study which showed that the greatest mark of a human flourishing known to scientists today is the quality and depth of our human relationships. There's something of friendship. There's something of gardening, you might call it. I I don't think Adam and Eve were the last ever couple to like a bit of gardening together. Um, But there's something about the purpose of why they're married. There is a sense of ministry being operated, an output that's supposed to happen in marriage. There's a place of sex, and then there is finally the place which we read of of children and parenting that flows from it. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And if you're not sure what that means, it's about the birds and the bees. Just so we're clear, fill the earth. Now, when Paul picks up the story in the recreated, right, created, it was good, decreated or destruction and when things went wrong and then recreated in the, in the third part. When Paul picks up the story, he doesn't reinvent the wheel. He doesn't start all over again. He doesn't say, in light of everything that's changed in the world and in culture now, we're going to write a different thing of marriage. In fact, what Paul does is he uses exactly the same words. He quotes exactly the same thing when he says in Ephesians 5.31, we just read it, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Uh, On the the 23rd of uh, June, 2007, um, I stood at the front of a big old church, very like this one, in a very different part of the world. Uh, I was very, very close to running out and losing it because I was so nervous. 
I was standing next to uh, my, one of my best friends and looking out at one half of this big church, which was completely full of uh, my family uh, and my friends. Largely, the ladies were wearing big, beautiful hats, and the men looked much smarter than they normally looked. And on the other side of the room was another whole group of people who I didn't know that well, who were the friends and families of, of a beautiful uh, lady. And as the the music piped up and I looked back down the aisle, I was met with this incredible uh, sight, which is the one that you can see here. Um, I had to remind someone earlier, that's not me on the right. Uh, I've never had that much hair ever, so it's definitely not me. Um, But at the back of the church, I I could see this beautiful uh, sight of of loveliness of, of Laura. And on her arm was her dad. And as the music played, they made their way down to the front of the church and they stood next to me. And the the pastor, the vicar said, who brings this woman to be married to this man? Um, And somewhat excitedly, I think it was because he was nervous, but he he sounded quite eager. Laura's dad said, I do. And promptly took Laura's hand and gave it to me. And as I held her hand in, in the giving of rings, and in the exchanging of promises, of vows, we, we were married. And there's something deeply symbolic about even that little motion. You see, up until that moment, we had both been part of different families. Laura's family were on one side, I my family were on the other side. Laura's primary place of, of uh, authority, her primary place of connection had been her biological family, and mine had been my biological family. We didn't live with our families, we both lived with different sets of friends by that point. But we moved from in that moment being part of different families to becoming single to becoming joined together in marriage. We use these words, and maybe you're familiar with different ones, but this is the ones we had. Ben, will you take Laura to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and protect her, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And the answer was, I will. Not I do, you notice, as it says in the movies. I will. Future tense, I will do that. And in return, Laura said the same. And then we used vows. I, Ben, take you, Laura, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. According to God's holy law, in the presence of God, I make this vow. In in the motion of giving and rings, in the action of words, in the commitment and the legality of it, we became a new family entity. That's order that Paul gives us. It's the same order that Genesis gives us. Two families, two individuals, one new family. Then, as Paul says in verse 31, consummated, that old, slightly uncool English word, with sex. As lives come together, as finances come together, as possessions come together, bodies come together. Now, it kind of strikes me, and this is a topic for another day, that that sex always gets a really bad reputation around the church. Uh, Somebody actually sent me an email the other week saying, it is true, right, that Christians think sex is a sin. And I had to gently point out, I was like, no, Christians do not think sex is a sin. Um, But that's often the view that we get. 
And I think it's the view we get because we live in a world which is, of course, all about radically sexual progressive behavior. Sex has become a kind of commodity. It's become an act of pleasure. It's almost like the precursor to what you do when you get to date somebody. It's like a different thing. It's, it, it's almost like a, an act of release. It's an act of fun. And Christians, therefore, must be really boring and awful because they always seem to be negative about sex. But actually, if you read what Paul says, he actually presents a higher and a more beautiful and a more complete view of sex than you probably ever will see in a movie. Because what Paul says is that sex is not just about the joining of bodies, it is actually about that journey of bringing together everything. As the great theologians, the Spice Girls, correctly point out, it is about two becoming one. It's a terrible song, but it's good theology. (laughs) It is about the joining of all things together within a protected, safe space where it becomes not about what I can get, but what I can give. Now, let me just be clear. I'm going to offer a lot of caveats along the way. Does that mean that sex is always great within a marriage? Not necessarily at all. Does that mean that marriage is always great and easy? Not at all. But there is something, something about this order that then Paul says becomes the stable and the healthy place where children can be born, which seems to matter. It just seems to matter, whatever you read it in Scripture. Um, And it's really interesting, and I've been doing a little deep dive this week, because the question I had as I was looking at this is like, well, that's fine, Paul. You wrote that 2,000 years ago. Uh, Originally, you're quoting Genesis. That came, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of millions of years ago. Like, is that still relevant today? Is there anything about marriage which is actually distinctively different that we should celebrate, or have we moved past that? And what I found fascinating is I did a bit of a deep dive into data and stats and nerdy things, which I really like. And I got up charts and tables and academic journals this week. I looked at everything I could find. Is that fascinatingly, and I'm not going to dump all the data on you, is that fascinating, wherever you look, whether you're looking at cohabiting versus marriage, whether you're looking at, um, whether you're looking at children born into cohabiting or children born into marriages, whether you're looking at divorce, whatever you look at, you can empirically show that marriage still is extremely important and actually it's the, the best and most fantastic foundation in which family life and children are born. Just, just to give you just a couple, couple of these things and I offer them not to judge anyone for whom this is not their story but I just want you to see just a little part of it. Uh, an average cohabitation lasts just two years and uh, for children born to cohabiting parents, 15% will have had their parents separate by the time that they're one. Half will not be living with both parents by the age of five. And two-thirds will not be living with both parents by the age of 10. Those are grim figures. Now, just to be clear, the stats for marriage are not brilliant either. They're not perfect, but they are markedly better. Now, again, please, please hear me. That is not to make any passing of judgment to any of the wonderful, heroic people who have to single parent in, in this place. In my mind, you are heroes, and I don't know how you do it, and you're incredible, and we love you. But it's just to say that there is seemingly something which God designed, like maybe millions and millions of years ago, which still seems to bear fruit today. It still is empirically proven to show an order that seems to matter. If you talk to sociologists about how to combat some of the biggest and most complicated issues in society, like homelessness, um, like, um, uh, like abuse, like crime, like addiction, 
actually increasingly what they will tell you is that to tackle those things, what you need to do is not provide just more housing or more medical care or more finance or more punishment. What you actually need to do is you need to provide better families. You need to provide more stability for children to be born and nurtured into because it's actually as you provide that, it is demonstrably true that when you provide that well and you bring up children well in a stable place that they then go on and flourish and like societies can be transformed. Now, again, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, and some of us know that every time you get married, it's going to guaranteed to be floating around on clouds and that you will have a wonderful time for the rest of your life, and that you will never encounter an argument with your spouse whatsoever. Um, That is a load of rubbish. Uh, I've been married for 16 years, and what I know is that marriage is hard, and it is a commitment, and it is a journey, but that seemingly God seems to know something about what he was doing when he put it together. But you might say, well, fine, Ben, but my parents did that, and it didn't end very well for me. Or you might even say, I did that, and it doesn't seem to be ending, uh, working out super well for me now. Is it just about the order? Is the order the only thing that matters? And the answer is no, it's not. Because it seems to Paul, like as much as order is extremely important, the posture is of equal, equal importance. Now, what you need to know is that in um, ancient Greek and Roman culture, women were treated badly. I mean, like really badly. In Greek culture, um, women were viewed primarily, and this is an appalling phrase, but it was in an academic journal I read this week, women were viewed primarily as species-extending beings. Uh, I don't recommend using that phrase with anybody that you love uh, ever. It will not go well for you. It will not go well. Um, In in no Greek city-state could a woman have political rights, and they were not even considered to be citizens in the culture. Um, In Roman cultures, um, women could not own property or control finances. And, and when, it came to f- when it came to marriage, that inequality was rife. Husbands chose wives. And they didn't choose them largely because of what we would describe as love. They, just, they chose them for benefit. Uh, they, it was normally more about extending a family lines or family alliance or social stability. Uh, Marriages were often arranged by families and parents rather than by romance. Um, I read this on Wikipedia, so it might be wrong. Um, (laughs) A man would choose his wife based on three categories in Roman culture. Anyone want to take a guess about what one of the three categories might have been? Anyone feeling brave? Land? Nope. Close. Any others? Dowry, someone said. Absolutely. The amount of money that the wife's family were prepared to offer to sweeten the deal. That's one. Uh, Another one? Age? No. Um, Sorry? I can't shout loud, someone. Beauty? No, not interested. Not interesting. Fertility? Absolutely. And the the third one? Goats. No, not goats. That's dowry. (laughs) Skills, specifically, apparently in Roman culture, weaving was the top skill that you could, you could have. Um, I don't know how any of us would fare in those categories today. But that's the context which Paul writes. And I tell you that because you need to understand that when you hear what Paul says. 
Because what Paul says first is completely in line with everything he would have been expected to say. He says, wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which is the Savior. Now, people have taken those verses out of context for 2,000 years and used them as a weapon against women. And it's appalling. And we should just know that. But if you actually read what Paul says, he says actually something which would have been a literal bomb within the culture. It's so countercultural. He says this in verse 21 submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Basically, this husbands submit to your wives, wives submit to your husbands. Nobody thought that was a good idea in that culture, and yet Paul says it. And then he says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Notice that love wasn't even on the cards, but love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? So let me just talk to to, to husbands in the room for a moment. Right? Do you have a leadership role in your marriage and your family? Yes, you do. Man up. But... What kind of leadership role are you supposed to have in your family? The same kind of loving leadership role that Jesus had for the church. And what kind of leadership role did Jesus provide for the church? He died for it. He died for it. He laid his life down. That agape way. What are we supposed to do, husbands? Protect, care, provide, sacrifice, give away as Christ gave to us. It is a radically different picture than most people have drawn of marriage over the years. And it happens within a context of covenant. Uh, now, I, I, think, I think we live in a moment of history where uh, marriage has become a contract, really. Um, you know, if you go and buy something from a store, it's like, I, I Ben, will give you Best Buy $500, and you, Best Buy, will give me a TV that works for at least a period of one year, and if it doesn't work, I will return it uh, and get my money back. Right? That's a contract. Well, that's what we talk about marriage, right? I, Ben, will take you, Laura, to be uh, my wife. Uh, I will uh, wash the dishes at least once a week. I will be available to earn at least a certain number of thousands of dollars a year. I will be on hand to deal with the kids' bedtime six days a week. You know, blah, 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 blah. And Laura will say, in in return, I, Laura, take you, Ben. I will cook the dinner on Thursday, you know, whatever. And we have this sort of strange idea that it's about a contract. That if I do my part, you do your part, and therefore we have an agreement. Then, of course, if I don't do my part, or you don't do your part, the deal's off, right? Get a refund. That's a prenup, (laughs) right? That's, That's what it is. But when you read a marriage in the Bible, it's not like that. It is not contract, it's covenant. And the difference is, is that when God loved you, he loved you with a covenant, not a contract. And a covenant basically says, I will love you. When God says of you, he doesn't say, Ben, I will love you on the condition that you turn up at church at least three, if not four Sundays a month, uh, that you're in a community group, that you tithe at least 10% of your things and you don't say some swear words. Then I'll love you. No, of course he doesn't. God says, I love you. I will always love you. There's literally nothing you can do to make me love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. I just love you. It is a I will commitment. And it's that which Paul gives us as this foundation of what is radically different as supposed to be true 
of, of marriage. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. The whole point of the marriage is it's supposed to be agape kind of love. It is about preferring the other. It's about loving the other. In finance, I am to bless you. In property, to provide for you. In time, to serve you. In sex, to give pleasure to you. Not for my own gain, but actually for yours. Now, deep breath again. 16 years in, I mess it up all the time. (laughs) I mess it up all the time. Why? Because I'm selfish and I get tired and grumpy and I don't want to love in an agape way. I want to love in a way that will get what I want out of, of things. There's nothing about this which is a magic bullet. There's nothing about it which is magic. But it is a commitment toward the hard work and the adventure and the journey. Now that's, that's marriage. But if I, you checked out on me a long time ago because you're like, I don't want to talk about marriage, that's fine. But look at what Paul says about parenting and everything else. Paul says about parenting in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And everybody in that culture would have gone, amen, brother. That's right. And then, though, he says in the next few verses, verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, not only make your kids obey you, but love them enough to bring them up well, to instruct them and prefer them and sacrifice for them. Maybe if you're, you're not married or you're not a parent, you could say exactly the same about your best friendships. Love the other person so well that it is for their benefit and for their good. We could say the same of colleagues. Like, I will love my colleagues so much that I will sacrifice and give my best for them. We could say the same for any kind of relationships. If you're a leader here today, if you are a boss in a workplace or you're a teacher of children or adults, whatever scenario you work in, the instruction is exactly the same. Love sacrificially to prefer the other. But we should also just notice one final thing. One final thing. It is about order, and order seems to matter. It is about posture, and that seems to matter. But it's also about goal, and the goal seems to matter too. You see, um, a marriage, or a parenting relationship, or dating, or a friendship, All of those things are not supposed to be the thing in itself. Now, let me explain what I mean there for a minute. When you get married, one of the actually the worst things you can ever do is is say, my marriage is going to be the best marriage in the world. You know, I am going to focus all my energy on this thing called marriage that it is going to be so incredible. In the same way, when you do that with a a parental relationship, I am going to be the best parent in the world. My parental relationship is going to be so fantastic. I'm going to be, it's going to be amazing. It's the same way you do it with friendships and colleagues. Why? Because if you put the thing as the the end goal, it will always be too pressured. It It will blow up because it's too hard to just make that thing the end goal. When you marry someone, the end goal is not a perfect marriage. Happy wife, happy life. Not in the Bible, right? What is in the Bible is what Paul says when actually is that we exist to present our spouses spotless and clean. And that doesn't mean showered 
and bathed. What it means is that we present, we are there to present our husbands and our wives, our children as holy and Christ-like. The reason I exist in the marriage to Laura is actually to bless her and encourage her towards Christ-likeness. That's what I am there for. Now, to be clear, that does not mean my goal is to change her into anything I decide that she should be, because I think that's Christ-like. No, that always ends badly. And I've discovered it over the years. It does not end well. Instead, though, I am to encourage her, to bless her, to spur her on, to pray for her so that she becomes that which she was originally made to be. I am there to bless her, to support her, to encourage her so that she becomes more Christ-like, more holy, more the person she was meant to be. And it's such a different, it's the same if you're a parent. It's not just that you want to be a perfect parent and you want your child to be a perfect child. No, it's actually that you exist to disciple your children towards knowing Christ and loving him. That if you're a friend, that you exist in your friend's life, part of what you exist there for is in order to love them, to encourage them so that they will become the person that they were always intended to be in Christ. But there is a hard part to this too, a really hard part. And I'm going to say this gently and carefully, but I'm also going to tell you what the Bible says. And it's because of this, that the Bible says if, if you're here today thinking about getting married one day, the instruction is really clear. Find someone who loves Jesus as much as you do. Find somebody who loves Jesus to marry if you love Jesus. Find a Christian. And the reason is not just because it's a law and you should do what you're told. It's actually because it matters. You see, Paul, Paul says, he says, when, when you get married to someone who is what you're effectively saying as a Christian is this. Laura, I love you so much. You are now the second most important thing in my life. And Laura says to me, it's okay, Ben, because I love you so much that you're the second most important thing in my life too. Why? Because God is first. God is first. That's the order. And it's okay if we both say that, but can you see what's about to go wrong if only one of us can say that? If I say, Laura, you are the most important thing in my, you're the second most important thing in my life. And Laura says, well, that's not really very fair because you are the most important thing in my life. Now, I'm not saying that, that married, marrying someone who is not a Christian can, can never work at all. I have great friends who have managed to make it, it work. But I can tell you, and the data will, can tell you too, that it's really hard to do it that way. It's really hard. Because basically, the pressure will always come one way or the other. Either your relationship with God is going to become in big threat. It's a big challenge. It's a threat in a marriage if one person loves God more than they love the other person and the other person doesn't. But at the same time, actually, also, the, also faith becomes under great pressure because something's always got to give in those kind of scenarios. And so it's, it's why out of love, Paul says, find someone who loves God like you love God, to encourage, to spur one another on. Now, again, just to be so clear, does that mean if you're married to someone who's not a Christian you are, you should get divorced? Heck no. The Bible tells you that. Don't do it. Love your spouse. Love them and pray for them and bless them. But recognize, for those of us who are just setting out and we've got to figure out one day 
Actually, love is important. How you feel about a person is important, but if you choose to marry someone that you can't share, the most deep, the most intimate personal relationship that you have in your life, it will become a really hard thing to, to do for you. And so what, 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 do, we, what do we do? And I, and I want to just offer some very final words before we, we pray to all of us, not just husbands, not just wives, not just mums and dads, but to all of us who have relationships, which I think is all of us. See, Paul, Paul offers us these very clear instructions wherever we find ourselves this morning, and they are this. If you want a great relationship with anybody of any kind, firstly, verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want a great outward relationship, you've got to start with a great inward relationship. If you want to know what it means to love well somebody else, you've got to know what it means to love God really well and be loved by him. Paul says in, from verse 18 onwards, worship God first. Put him first. Give thanks to him. Be filled with the power and the presence of God regularly because you're going to need it for every moment of life. You won't manage to do it any other way. But be filled in such a way that then out of it, your greatest heart desire is to bring pleasure to God, to love his law, to want to seek to honor him in every relationship you have, to love the order and the blueprint that he's given, and then to live with the posture he set out towards the goal of holiness and eternal life. And so uh, I'd love us just to pray. I'd love us to pray. And um, as we pray, I, I, want, I want just to recognize that some of us might have found that very hard. And hard because for all our best intents, life hasn't worked out exactly as we hoped it would. But also maybe hard because actually we recognize even where we are today might not even be as God asked and intended it to be. Um, and so would you stand where you are? And I'm just going to lead us, lead us in a time of prayer. And as you stand, I, I just want to repeat what I said at the beginning, which is Jesus loves you. We love you. God is a God of second and third and fourth and tenth and 25th chances. It's the best news. And if after this morning you want to talk to us, Laura and I would love to talk to you. We would love to pray with you. We would love to walk your journey of relationships in life with you. But let's just close our eyes and um, invite the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we love you. And we want to be filled by you full of all life and truth and beauty. Would you come? Would you come? And Holy Spirit, even in those places this morning where, where something is just triggered inside our heart, where, we're, where we've had that kind of reaction, I, I pray that you just come and bring your peace to bear. Come and bring your truth and your affirmation and your love to bear in this moment. And what I want to do is I just want to pray for some different groups of people. Firstly, I just want to pray if, if for those of us who are single here today. I want to pray a prayer of blessing on you. That you today would know the affirmation of the Father. 
the intimacy of the Holy Spirit and the salvation of Jesus Christ to walk faithfully in celibacy in life. I wanna pray for those who are considering getting married one day, that you would walk with courage and determination and Christ-likeness in every moment to put God first. That you would stand with boldness even as the world around doesn't understand and doesn't get it. That you would hold fast to that which you know to be true and real in the Bible. I want to pray for those of us who've experienced great pain and maybe even divorce that today you would know the healing of your hearts by the Holy Spirit. That you would know that you are loved and chosen and set apart and that God has not finished with you yet. That he is about new beginnings and redemption and salvation and new stories. And then the finally, I want to pray for those of us who this morning we've just arrived and we've just, we've just had to acknowledge that our lives are not in the place where they should be and we are in a mess. That this morning you would know the filling of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of God's holiness and the affirmation towards a new beginning today. So Lord, come, come and fill your children again as we worship. Come and heal us again as we worship, as we pour out our hearts as we pour out our grief, as we pour out our joys, as we pour out our frustrations, Lord, would you come and minister to us, we pray. We need you because we can't do it without you.